Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm supposed like to take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Okay, we got an uh, we got an interesting guest today. Let me tell you why. Blackwater, you've probably heard the name before. Some love him, some respect him, some hate him, some say he's misunderstood. But regardless of what you say, he served in the military as a Navy SEAL. When he got out, he started a company called Blackwater, December 26, 1996. In 2010, he ended up selling the company. During that time, he was awarded $2 billion of government security contract, of which $1.6 billion of it were unclassified federal contracts. From 01 to 09, the CIA awarded him up to $600 million in classified contracts to Blackwater and its affiliates. Aside from that, during their course of 40,000 Blackwater personal security missions, I've heard you say 100,000, but here I'm reading 40,000, only 200 involved guards uh, firing their weapons, stating no one under uh, our care was ever killed or injured. We kept them safe. All the while, we had 30 of our men killed. I think the number ended up being 41, if I'm not mistaken. This number may be a little bit out of date. And then aside from that, he is also from a very special family, the Prince family. Father, uh, I believe Edgar Prince, had two kids. One is Eric Prince, the one we're going to talk to. He had more than two kids? Four kids. He had four kids. Okay, father had four kids. Two out of the four. One is you. Super successful. You've done well for yourself. And you're somewhat involved in politics. I was the unexpected blessing. <laughs> you were the unexpected. So you're the I fourth have, one. I have three much older sisters. Okay, got it. The, uh, is Betsy the oldest or is Betsy older? Betsy's, Betsy's the oldest. She's so, 12 years older. My next sister is 10. And the next one that's is, right. nine, is four. nine years old. It is nine four. So old. four kids. But the oldest and the youngest took it to a whole different level. Betsy DeVos, who is... Uh, I believe married to Dick DeVos. I know yep. the father, Rich DeVos. He founded Amway. Very, very Great successful man. family. Yep. Loved it, admired by anybody you ask that's been close to him, has nothing but good things to say uh, about him. My kids go to a school that he funded a baseball uh, uh, field that we have. She's successful. You're successful. She becomes U.S. Secretary of Education. I don't know what your father did. Aside from that, he got 12 kids. When somebody has 12 kids, you have kids only if you believe the future looks bright. I want to know if you think the future looks bright. And I got a bunch of weird questions for you. I, I, I want to ask, you know, I asked a couple friends, hey, I'm talking to Eric, you know, what can you say about him? Is he the, the American Pergosian Wagner Group? Apparently you did some business with him uh, or maybe he uh, uh, hired you guys. We'll talk about that, whatever the story is behind it. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a hard no. Okay, great. I mean, we well, can talk about it, for but sure. I did not uh, do anything with that. You can call any of these things that I bring up. You can call all of them out and we'll have a good time with it. Uh, uh, PMC, some say you founded PMC, even though it's been done before, mm. not in the U.S., it's been done in the past before. Again, you'll give your answer to it. Uh, we'll talk Hamas, we'll talk Israel, we'll talk uh, uh, the difference between, you know, whether we should trust a private military contractor or the national one. There's a lot to be talked about. Again, you've lived a very interesting life, but it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so when, when, what was it that caused you to say, I'm going to start Blackwater? How did that happen? I, um, well, back to the family policy. My dad was a very successful, self-made guy, built a business which made first die-cast machines, big machine mm-hmm. that squeezes a, a mold and makes the transmission casing of your car, the engine block, and now they're even die-casting uh, entire Tesla chassis. 
Um, <clears throat> and then he made uh, automotive parts in the early 70s, and the business really grew. It was privately owned. But family policy was you don't come and work in the family business. You have to go do your own thing first. You can later, but not at the beginning. You have to go do something completely on your own, not associated with the family. Did he have a, a time limit, like at what age you can come back? Was that clear or was it kind of blurry? Kind of blurry. Okay. I don't think he really bargained that I was going to go join the SEAL teams. But my plan was to go 10 to 12 years in the SEAL teams, which is a good time to be a SEAL officer. Much beyond that, you kind of get stuck at a desk. But he died <coughs> of a heart attack in 95, mm-hmm. and um, I kind of threw the family into a bit of a, a lurch because there wasn't a clear successor to take over the business. And so my mom made the right decision and she sold the whole thing. And uh, I got out to help that out. And at about the same time, right after the birth of our second child, my wife was diagnosed with cancer at 29. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got out of the Navy and uh, started Blackwater really as a way to stay connected to the SEAL teams. Got it. And by the way, for folks that are listening, your dad didn't just build a small business. It's a good-sized business. I think you sold it for like $1.35 billion or some, some number like that I read. Is that, is that yeah. correct? It was a, yeah, it was a 5,000-employee. It was almost a billion in sales. Uh, very efficient, very effective at what they did. Now, you know, what did your other two sisters do, the, the two, two middle ones? What business did they go into? Um, my middle sister has a, uh, her family has a significant ice cream business. And Would I know about it? Hudsonville Ice Cream, okay. and they make a whole bunch of private label um, brands for a lot of stuff that you'd see in the grocery store shelves. And my youngest sister, they have a bunch of car dealerships and um, injection molding, and she is an ordained minister. So, so how is that possible for everybody to be successful? What did mom and dad teach? Were there a certain set of clear values and principles? We expect you to do this, and then you do this, and then you do that. I guess uh, they kind of imbued that Dutch Protestant work ethic from a very early age, and um, hard work and excellence was expected. But was there, like, you know, when I talk to my kids, I'll, you know, I've had I've interviewed Kennedy and I've interviewed President Bush, and I'll say, and I say Kennedy, I mean RF Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. Yeah. I'm, I'm too young to have met Great him. Great guy. Very nice guy. And I would ask, I'd say, so tell me what are the traditions within the family? Like, what do you do? What did your father or grandfather expect from you? What was dinner like? What did you guys talk about? You know, we always talk about politics. We would always debate. It was always told, go make your money, take care of your wife, take care of your kids, take care of your family, and then give back to public service in your own way. Politics, church, nonprofit, whatever it may be. Was there any set of principles they passed down to you guys, or was it kind of general? There's uh, got to be some traditions. There's no way you guys became this and by accident. We certainly went to a... Um K through 12 Christian school it was run by the church warrior members, and um, we traveled a lot. My dad was invited by the Soviets in the early 70s to come there because they wanted to buy his machines. And so he went off to Moscow, didn't like it at all, didn't like the surveillance state and the whole thing. And so they made, um, you know, by the late 70s, the business was starting to do okay. Mm-hmm. Because before that, it was really struggled. I mean, he, my dad almost died. He had a heart attack at um, 42 years old in 1973. And um, that really gave him perspective. Um, but we started to travel. And he, he actually shipped a, a Chevy van to Europe 
and we did a six-week road trip across Eastern Europe as well, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, all the rest. I spent my my seventh birthday in 1976 in Berlin, and I will never forget that. It was a great, I think, formative moment seeing the guns, the dogs, the tank traps, the minefields, Achtung Meinen yeah. signs, yeah. Um, all facing in, keeping people prisoner in East Germany. So even for a seven-year-old, you can figure out Maybe the socialist workers' paradise is not such a paradise. Is he telling you this while you're going through it? And son, look, this oh, is oh yeah, what, no, that's I, I'm, he's teaching. I'm seeing that, but clearly. is he teaching? Sure. Or, okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember. Dry, I remember rolling into Prague then, Prague, the capital of Czechoslovakia, and uh, the only bright color in the whole capital was red commie stars in the buildings because the buildings were disgusting. Wow. Dark gray from all the coal smoke. Mm-hmm. My first girlfriend at the refugee camp was Czechoslovakia. Katarina Staff, her uh, older brother was my best friend, Jan Staff. He died very early. A uh, good friend of mine. Okay, so you're traveling. You're learning. Are you traveling because your dad is at all connected to the government? Or oh, no, he's making money? and Zero. No, no. Nothing to that do with... That travel was purely educational to my sisters and mine. And was he ever... But, but he never. He was never an agent. He was never linked to the government. He never worked with them. Nothing at all. Nothing. Did that... Have, that, that that never touched the family at all. Did he have any interest in politics? Did he talk politics with you guys? Not really until 1980. Because I, I remember Reagan. him saying that in the late 70s, he was paying an effective income tax rate of like 90%. So this is the wonderful Jimmy Carter era. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, you know, I'd watch the news with him and we'd talk about it. And I remember kind of my first, the farthest back moment I remember is Nixon resigning. Because mm-hmm. it was a, kind of a traumatic moment mm-hmm. for the country. And I, and I remember um, seeing the helicopters fly off the rooftop of Saigon in 75. So I paid attention to those things. Totally get it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, my family, mother's side communist, dad's side imperialist. So they, they had two divorces within 20 years to each other. <laughs> married, divorced, married, divorced, done. They cannot be in the same room together. If they are, I have to call private security. That's a and fundamental people, you know, difference in In, in a big view. way. By the way, to me, I think political difference is more uh, negatively impacting the marriage than religious difference. You can be a Christian and a Catholic or a Christian or an atheist, but you both believe in the same political ideas. That's more likely to work out than... A, you know, Christian and a Christian, but one is a commie, one is a imperialist, less likely for it to work out. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. How I don't I, recommend it, by the way, if you were. I here. don't know how a communist could be a Christian as well. Well, you know, it is what it is. They did escape Russia, go to Iran eventually, and they found each other. Anyways. Okay, so I was curious. Family. What happened with uh, raising uh, four successful kids while he's building a business that eventually ends up selling for $1.35 billion? Let's go to Blackwater. So... You read all over the place, the whole concept of, you know, private military contractors. You hear different names being thrown out by a bunch of different people, right? And you're the founder of it in America, and you've told the story of really back in the days, this is nothing new. We've always had this before. When you get out, why do you choose to go become a private military contractor? Um, the SEAL teams had used private facilities since the 70s. Mm-hmm. A shooting instructor that was a really good competitive shooter would build a small facility almost like a dojo, mm-hmm. and teams would go there. But no one had done it on an industrial scale. And the tempo that SEAL teams would train at and to for a deployment, like mm-hmm. the, I remember the year before I deployed, I was gone 11 of 12 months before even deploying for another six months. Are you married at the time or no? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, so that's hard. And so building a significant training facility where the teams could do a lot of that stuff local and still get home in time for dinner was important to me. And I wanted to stay connected because I got out of the Navy way earlier than I wanted to. And I was in the unusual, I mean, I think a lot of guys had the idea. I'm not original on it. I was in the unusual position that I could fund it because funding a private training facility in the 1990s when a major base or mm-hmm. range facility was being closed mm-hmm. under BRAC mm-hmm. uh, like once a week, that was very counterintuitive. It was unfinanceable. And every smart financial advisor said, that's a dumb idea. It'll never work. So started small. Well, had to buy a lot of land. but I, that, That's the 6,000 acres you bought? Bought 3,100 acres to start. Right. And it was cut over forestry land. Um, I, I knew nothing about business, nothing about government contracting, nothing about land development. But just kind of figured it out. And, and you go back to the, uh, the, the team that you know and trust. Right? I hired... Um, Ken Vieira, who was my uh, training officer at SEAL Team 8. Al Clark was uh, our first firearms instructor. And I hired Jim Dehart, who was the guy that managed, um, actually managed the facility of SEAL Team 6 and built it out. So, you know, there's just um, very talented, hard-driving guys that figured it out. Now, if I would have worked with you and if I was at any of the units you were at, would I have known that you're eventually going to start something? Would I say, this guy's probably going to start something? Nah, not necessarily. I kept, I kept my father's success very hidden. So did kids, did, did the crew know that you were from a wealthy family, or <laughs> no? I, I kept it, I kept it really quiet the whole time, except after my father died, and then um, that was in March of '95. Like three weeks later, I had to be out in Fallon, Nevada, at the Naval Strike Warfare Center because we were doing combat search and rescue training and strike training, and um, we got done on a Friday, and the Navy aircraft wasn't coming to move us all back until the following Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And I asked my boss, I said, listen, I got all kinds of family issues because my dad just died three weeks earlier. Do you mind if I split, and I'll see you guys back at the team on Tuesday? He goes, go. And my mom sent the plane. <laughs> and um, a couple of guys from my platoon drove me to the airport outside the base with a truck, and I, I said, guys... I got my bags to stay here. It's like, no, that's okay, Mr. P. Yeah, I got, got a you. private jig on him. No, no, me I, up. I, and um, um, were you like, Mom? What are you doing, Mom? Why are you doing this? No, no, it was the only way I was going to get back because it okay. was out in the middle of nowhere. Got it. But um, so that that between those two guys, it spilled the beans. But uh, they asked me, of course, like, wait a minute. So you could like retire right now? I was like, well. I guess I could, but who would want to do that? So anyway, that was the that was the only time it uh, the the secret cracked. Very interesting that you're from a very well off family. You have money. You've traveled the world. You've seen a lot of different things. You probably stayed at the best hotels. You probably traveled private, like you're talking about. You guys probably owned jets. You lived in beautiful homes, beautiful vacation homes, and you chose to go into military to make your life tougher and harder. Why would anybody in the right mind do that? Or was it the fact that they just raised you so well that it wasn't no, tied to I look, money? I always had a desire to go in the military. I was a military history geek. Because remember, my, my family went to Normandy in 1980, mm-hmm. and I was I was the tour guide at 11. So, Got I it. mean, Pegasus Ridge, and this is Sword Gold, Juneau, Utah, Omaha, 
A movie? Yeah. Did a movie inspire you? To, typically, it's linked to a movie. Was it a movie or a well, teacher? Well, the only movie about Normandy that was out then was The Longest Day, which was made in the 60s. Right. I probably did see that at that point, but um, no, I'd read. I just read a lot of okay. that kind of stuff. It's okay. So now you're, you're buying the land, 3,100 acres. You bring your three uh, peers to come start with you. You have the advantage that you have money, which means you can get started with money. And now people are kind of realizing your family's got money. Okay, maybe we're going to do something with this guy. You start 3,100 acres. You got your stuff going. Who's your first customer, and how do you find your first customer? Uh, At that point, it was a West Coast SEAL team, actually, that sent their guys all the way across because they didn't have any access to good areas then. And that's how we started. Our first big regular customer was actually the Canadian Special Forces the the Canadian equivalent of Delta Force would come and do their selection January, February, March, because it was just too damn cold to be training in Toronto. Got it. And how did they find you? Because it's not like you're doing internet, you're running funnels, you're doing ads, you're running it on a paper. The the soft units would talk. The soft units would talk even to people in Canada? Sure. Yeah. Because, Tell me more. Unpack that for me. Just like that, because the the U.S. elite units would train with Canadians, would train with the Brits, would train with the other European counterparts. And what are they saying? Are they saying, hey, did you guys hear about what he's doing? Did you guys hear about what Eric started? Is that kind of what the conversation is like? And what is he doing? Sure. He's doing such and such. Let me give him a call. Yep. And then, so if you've never done this Look, before. So, so uh, the di- why, why we built Blackwater the way it was is because training on government bases was exceedingly bureaucratic. You'd go to try to check out and use a range, and some sergeant wouldn't be around, and they wouldn't give you the range brief, and your ammo wouldn't show up on time. And for a SEAL team that's doing 11 out of 12 months where you're on the road and you have all this stuff you have to train for, all these hoops you have to jump through, then having to go through the nonsense of getting jerked around on Mm -hmm. an Army base, Mm -hmm. it just didn't work. So we gave people a country club-like experience. If you book a tee time, I'm not a golfer, but if you book a tea time, you expect to be ready at 8 a.m. Right. You expect the greens are going to be raked, and it's all going to be in order. And that's what we did. Radio, brief, ammo, go. Lunch at 12, and it was a customer service organization, and that's, that's how we ran it. And um, <clears throat> at the same time, so Blackwater's getting started. I moved back to Michigan because the original business my dad started, the diecast machine business, because we'd sold the mothership, mm-hmm. but the, the diecast machine business was had been kind of bumping along since started. It, it was not really making money or losing money. And um, I wanted, I didn't have an MBA, but I really wanted to turn around my dad's business and make something run well. And um, <laughs> I remember my dad described the president there as the smartest engineer he ever knew. And great, great guy, smart guy, would not change anything because we're trying to kind of do a lean transformation, kind of based mm-hmm. on the Toyota production system to engineer out cost and um, buy things smarter. So I had to, at 27, I had to fire him. And uh, that was quite an experience and kind of restaffed the whole place with people that were much more focused on Six Sigma and lean manufacturing, et cetera. And that, um, that really taught me about linear flow. If you think about old school factories versus how a Toyota system, a Toyota production system runs. Sure. Yep. And that really, I mean, even the Japanese, when they came to compete in America in mm-hmm. the eighties, mm-hmm. it really, it, it, it forced American manufacturing to wake up yeah. and cut the weight. Detroit. Yeah, exactly. And so 
seeing that in doing that to a machine tool business, which was a 30-year-old business and very based on very old school practices, I start to think that, okay, we built a training facility, but what does the military do? It recruits, it vets, vet meaning vetting, recruits, vets, equips, trains, deploys, and supports people to do a difficult job in a difficult place. And so really, as Blackwater built out, and there was actually a kind of a aspirational picture made at the day we opened of what we wanted to look like in 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was. It, it was became a machine, which did that. And so later when 9-11 happened and we got pulled into the security business, doing overseas deployments of people for the USG, that put us in good shape. And that allowed us to be the low-cost competitor because we could process and recruit and do all that stuff with and for the guys before they went much much more effectively than our than our competitors. So you start off with training, all one, so that's 96, December 26, 96. We opened in 97. 97. Okay. Yep. So that means you don't get uh, the real big contracts till 01, 02. Correct. The first years were very lean. Um, the What's your revenue first year? What kind of numbers you guys? 400,000. Okay, got it. Second year was 800, then a million two, then a million six. Still haven't blown up yet. Nope. Then it went to 12. Got it. That's it. That's, oh, got it. 12, 35, yep. 160, mm-hmm. 400, 550, and up. Did you guys ever hit a, a bill in revenue? Uh, we were about 850. 850? 850 we topped out at. And this is seven? Would it be 07 or 08? Uh, about 08. 08. Okay. So legitimate business, you're going 400, 800, 1.2, 1.6, 16 million, right? Or 12 to 6, 12 million, million, 35 35. million. Yeah. Okay. So so if you're 400 first year revenue, you brought the three guys, the average salary for Navy SEAL today at the median is I think uh, 97. The top one percentile, if I'm not mistaken, is 135, 138 today. Yeah. Look, the, the first year or two, I still had to, I had to help with payroll. Got sure. It. But so then, you, but then again, you just find people that will find a way to win. And we had very destructive customers, meaning they shot a lot of stuff. Right. And they ended up destroying all the target systems we bought on the outside. And so Jim Dehart, the guy that came over from Dev mm-hmm, Group, mm-hmm. designed fantastic steel targets that everybody loved. And mm-hmm. so customers started buying them. And, and oddly enough, the FBI ordered in the 11th hour of the last day of the fiscal year, ordered four hundred thousand dollars worth of target target systems from us. That was the that was four hundred thousand of that million two revenue year. <laughs> Third on the last day. No, literally like at eleven fifty five p.m. Wow. on September thirty, the last day of the fiscal year, a fax machine that starts spitting out. You. Oh God, yeah, thirty percent of our. I know that's great. <laughs> of course, I know what that feels like. And the irony it was, it was the FBI. So our target systems. Uh, sta- uh, you know, um, are are probably at ten or twelve field field offices around the country. Now you, you're, I'm assuming you're losing money first year, second year, third year because you're not. We're you're break, paying, we're, we broke even at about a million two. Okay, so you're paying these guys. You're not making. You're not taking any money off the table because you don't have any money to take off the table. Negative. So when did you know? And by the way. If I'm working, if I got two options, okay, I'm in the Navy SEAL, I'm making the 97 idea. Let's say I'm making six figures, right? What advantage do I have? And by the way, that has to do with time and service, rank, all this. So I'm just. Well, come you, on, man. You're, 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 
27 years ago, it wasn't $97,000 of, of payroll back then. 60000 you want to see. Yeah, 60. Okay, let's say 60000 So 60 and the best guys are making 80. Is that fair? We put 60 to 80? Okay. Something like so that. So what, why would I work for you instead of staying in the military? I'm assuming as a private contractor, you probably have way more to offer than the military does at because this point, right? Because they, they like the chance to do it right. What does that mean? In a non-bureaucratic, non-nonsense way. I remember being a Hummer mechanic, and we would order parts, and I would look at the number, and I'd say, yeah, this part is $800. I'm like, what is, why is this $800? And you'd go look it up, and you talk to Mercedes or who you, you know, yeah, it's a $70 part. Yep. We're spending $800 on, yes, we are. What are you talking about? It's kind of what happens here. So is that kind of what you were talking about, where money was being wasted? Um, yes. I, like our first State Department job, which didn't come until probably 03 or 04, we, um, we, you know, we'd been training high-end special operations units. We knew what we were doing. We mm-hmm. knew our costs. Yep. The first price we submitted to State, they said, we can't accept this. I said, why? It's so low, it's not deemed credible. Mm. That's, Got it. That's the idea. I understand. H- have you been to Drive Tanks, the, the facility in uh, San Antonio? Drive tanks? Well, no, I have. Uh, I used to have tanks on my farm. Have you heard of drive tanks? No. Okay, so this place called drive <laughs> tanks. One day, crazy story, I'll what? tell you. I had kids. I had two British armored personnel carriers. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you Some crazy people go st- for hay rides. We had tank rides. But you see, you look American. You are American. I'm from Iran. So one day, uh, <laughs> I take my kids. These guys from drive tanks reach out. They say, Pat, we love the content. We want you to come out and bring your kids. We're going to have a lot of good time. We're going to drive over cars with tanks. We're going to blow things up. You're going to do 50 cal. You're going to say, I'm like, all right, let's go. We get into, uh, we get a big uh, sprinter up. We get the guys. We go. I took both of my boys at the time. This is five years ago. So my oldest would be seven. Youngest would be five. We go there. There's Navy SEALs. There's Delta. There's Special Forces, Fifth Group, everybody. They're there. And you're making bombs. You're driving on tanks. You're doing all this stuff. It was an incredible experience. If a person's never gone to drive tanks, you got to go to. It's a great experience. My kids come back. That next week, my son goes to school, the younger one, five-year-old. Teacher says, how was your weekend? She says, it was great. So what did you do, Dylan? My daddy and I made bombs, and we blew buildings up. I get a call from school. The teacher says, your son can't say stuff like this because I'm from Iran, so they're freaking out. I said, well, what did my son say? He said, well, your son said you and him made bombs, and you guys blew up buildings. I said, my son's not lying to you. (laughs) <laughs> well, sir, what do you mean you guys made bombs? I said, man, we went to this place in a military facility. These are trainers, drive tanks. Here's the video. Oh, my God, he scared the kids off. I said, this is an innocent kid. He's just giving you experience. Anyways, we had a great time with it. I ask you this because was this kind of like a hobby or was it a business? Did you see it being a billion-dollar business? Was it kind of like, let's see what it's going to turn into? Or was it a clear vision? You saying, I think we can turn this into a billion-dollar empire. I Another formative moment was seeing the incompetence and corruption of the UN in Bosnia, right? yeah. the Yugoslav Civil War, and um, you know, UN let forces letting people just get slaughtered at Srebrenica. So yeah, I had, um, and even seeing the nonsense what happened in Rwanda, UN run their mouth, uh, and the the two, the Houthis kill. Sorry, no, the um, Tutsis and the Hutus. Yeah. The, the, the hoodoos kill a million Tutsis with basically farm tools in four months in Rwanda. Come on. So there, I, I definitely saw a need for private peacekeeping as a way to displace the UN, which was, in my mind, and proven corrupt, immoral, 
useless. Beyond useless, they're they're malign. In your mind, are you sequencing the process of how this is going to work? Yeah, we're going to start off as a training facility. We're going to get the word out there. We're going to get the right training in. And then all of a sudden, we're going to be a contractor, and we're going to do it better than the military is doing it. Did you kind of foresee that happening? Yes. And seeing what Executive Outcomes did, which is a South African Mm -hmm. PMC that was formed in the early 90s, uh, the great work they did in ending the war in Angola and and literally saving Sierra Leone from a an almost an ISIS-like force called the Revolutionary United Front. They cleaned it up in 120 days and then um, were forced to leave by idiots at the State Department, only to have the country retaken again by the same bad guys. Um, I knew there was a place to do peacekeeping and stability operations infinitely better than what the status quo was. Are you and 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 in doing so, saving millions of people from unnecessary suffering. When you're talking to the first three guys you hired, are you selling them that vision? No. Okay, so they don't know. They're no. simple. Wanting to come over to you is the fact that five and ten meter target was we're going to run a fantastic training facility, and you get to innovate tactics, techniques, and procedures. And we wanted to be a place where, because <clears throat> at that point, the SEAL teams. The, the JSOC units were not doing a whole lot of close quarter battle and door kicking and that stuff. The, actually, the people to really learn from then was L.A. SWAT. They taught the best hostage rescue. L.A. SWAT. Yeah. So we brought Ken Thatcher, um, senior guy from L.A. SWAT, out oh. to teach courses at Blackwater. And so we wanted to make Blackwater the repository, the crossroads of tactical expertise. Got it. Okay. So... 400, 800, 1.2 million, 1.6 million, 12 million, 35 million. When did you get the contract where you said, guys, this thing's about to change? What, I know you said 9-11, but when was it when they actually no, made? No, it was actually after the USS Cole was blown up in October of 2000, right? Navy ship blown up by a suicide boat, killed 17 sailors. Yep. They were holding unloaded weapons that they hardly ever fired before because the Navy viewed firearms training as too dangerous. So they're shooting laser simulators. So the Navy came to us having, because we were training lots of soft units, and they said, could you train sailors to protect their ship, retake their ship, all the elements of small arms, which the Navy had basically abrogated knowledge and responsibility of. So this is still training, though, right? You're still not deploying. No, correct. Okay. So when but that was, a, that, was a seven, that was a $7 million a year contract. I got you. Real, That's big. which is real for us. Now it's official. Now you're sitting there saying, "Guys, something happened," but it's still training, right? Yep. At, at this point, how many former military vets, SEALs? I'm talking high level soldiers. Do you have when you got the seven million dollar contract? How many do you have for for that kind of training volume? It's probably thirty instructors. Thirty instructors. Okay. Because we had to stand up facilities in Jacksonville and Groton, Connecticut, and. San Diego and Bremerton, Washington. Okay. So now that's, that's happening. You got the $7 million. It, it, what's the next call to say, hey, we actually need a private military contract to send soldiers out? When was that? After 9-11, a high-level job for the CIA in Afghanistan. How big Two, was that? Uh, that was 18 guys. 18 guys. Yep. Got it. 18 guys because the military didn't want to do it with less than 250. The they, military didn't want to do it. They asked, the mili- they asked the military to do that. And they right? wanted 250 people. They said, we will not, will not do it with less than 250 people. You were able to do it with 18 people. Yep. Okay. 
So when, when that call comes in... And then the next one after that was a very remote, very important base um, that enabled a lot of GWAT activity. And there was 166 soldiers there, and we replaced it with 25 of our guys. 106 they, with 25. They, in that case, they had 28 soldiers mm-hmm. in infantry platoon mm-hmm. and 138 people supporting the 28. And we could send 25 guys, five of which were dual-hatted, to keep the power, the water, the sanitation, the comms, and the food running. It's a different model. I can send 30, 40, and 50-year-olds that have a lot of experience and can fix a generator, run a radio, and, and fix a desail pump. Um, versus the military sends lots of 18 and 20-year-olds that can do barely one thing. So what per, at this point, what percentage of your business is intelligence? What percentage is muscle? What percentage is protection? Um, the cost of overseas, of deploying guys to weird places, that cost gets high fast. So that starts to skew the revenue. But um, at you know as we're growing, it was still probably... 40%, 50% training, 50% security. And then we bought an aviation business in 2003, Presidential Airways, a niche little business. It was some former TF-160 guys, Richard Pear, Tim Childry. Um, and they had the licenses in one leased aircraft. And we bought that. And um, six years later, we had 73 aircraft mm-hmm. that we owned and operated. Everything from a 767 to a Super Tucano light attack aircraft that was fitted out with a FLIR, uh, a G-Box, a cell phone intercept system, geolocation, Link 16, so we could talk to all the fast movers, and uh, and it could drop laser-guided bombs. It was magnificent, and, and we actually <laughs> we put that on contract to JSOC as a way for them to do very cost-effective close air support, cheaply. And, uh, boy, the big Air Force, big Navy, smashed that. Because anything that threatened the primacy of the trillion-dollar F-35, they wanted nothing to do with. Now, you know, the difference between PMC and working for national, you know, your military, Army, Air Force, you know, Marines, Navy, whatever it may be. Where is my pride to work for you versus the pride to stay, keep serving the traditional Marines, Army, Navy, sure. Air Force, whatever it may be? Um. When, when the debate um, was happening over the over whether the U.S. should go to an all-volunteer force, mm-hmm. it was in Congress in the early 70s. And Westmoreland, who was the, the idiot general that really screwed up in Vietnam, who then they made the chief of staff of the armed forces, screw up. Under who? Under Johnson and then, um, makes sense. And then Nixon. Yep. Um, he said, um, I do not want to lead an army of mercenaries. That's what Westmoreland, career army officer, called an all-volunteer force because the men and women were finally going to get paid a fair wage. And uh, Milton Friedman was debating him in, in Congress, and he said, um, well, sir, then, uh, then I am served by a mercenary butcher, accountant, and barber. Because if you're not getting paid a wage that you're due, a fair wage, then you're not a free man, you're a slave. So, uh, look, the, the big military can complain about... Well, obviously they were about um, uh, fair pay, but a contractor is, in our case, was an American veteran that already served their country once, volunteered to, and Mm -hmm. now they're just volunteering to go back again and do it 
you know, for, uh, for pay, of course, they're not doing it for free. Um, and, and this idea that our contractors were paid vastly more is also really inaccurate because our guys were only paid for every day they're in the hot zone, much like, just like a, a roughneck gets paid to go to a rig. They get paid a lot. The day they come ashore, their pay goes to zero. So our guys were paid to be in the hot zone to do the dangerous thing. And as soon as they left, they went to zero. I saw, I saw somewhere $600 a day, if I'm not mistaken. That's a yeah. number I saw in the hot zone. Yep. Sometimes yeah. more. Sometimes right. more. Okay. So, but, but, but again, the military is tax-free in a combat zone. Totally get it. All yeah. kinds of other housing allowances and, and other stuff, which is non-cash con- uh, compensation that right. they don't really f- see and feel. But in our case, it was simple cash on a, on a barrel head. So when you, if I'm, if I'm working for Blackwater, I'm a contractor there. You pay me $600, and $600 is not five days a week. It's seven days a week. So I'm making 42 and, and And it could be 18 hours a day or it could be 22 hours a day. Right? I mean, it depends. If the op tempos sure. go, you turn two. But your day is 600. Two hours or 24 hours at $600? Yes, but you're, but you're still in a war zone, and you're still at risk of being shot. Sure. I mean, we had some of our, our guys were wounded while asleep in their beds at night. I mean, we have an extremely inspiring story. There's a, a West Point grad, Army officer, Army Ranger named Derek Wright, um, and he was uh, about 2006 asleep in his pod in the, um, next to the embassy, and a 107 rocket launched by Iranian surrogates came through, blew up uh, in his pod, and the guys found him with a pool of brain fluid laying on the floor. And they stabilized him, kept him alive, but they figured he was brain dead. They flew him to, um, to Landstuhl, Germany, where the military hospital was, and I remember meeting his parents and his wife because they came through our office because we had to quick get them a, a passport, basically to go say goodbye, to unplug their loved one. So I remember sitting there praying with them and crying with them, and off they go. And uh, so they got there like five days after the incident, and uh, Cindy walks in, and there's been no brain activity, and she takes her husband's hand and said, Babe, I'm here. And he squeezes her hand. Hmm. And, uh, and it started a long road back, and she made videos, and she documented it beautifully. And I tear up every time because he learned to walk again, and then he learned to run. And literally that rocket took the back third of his head off. And um, one of his eyes doesn't work well, but um, God bless him. He is as resilient as you could imagine. He's alive, and he is a tour guide in the state capital of Get Texas. Get out of here. Yeah. Get out of here. What yeah. a story. Wow. Wow. So yes, people can pay it. Can, people can you know throw stones at uh, contractors getting paid. That was a guy that served his country as a ranger, and he goes back serving again, and he's you know takes one to the head while he's in bed. Yeah, I, I, to me, I, I don't have a problem with the uh, with the contractors getting paid. I'm trying to make it as efficient as possible to see what do we get better usage of our money with paying it to our soldiers that are putting their lives on the line, or overpaying for product by a thousand percent that you can. Get somebody else negotiate so you can save some money for the company. Look, we have a we have an antitrust problem all across America. We've way overconsolidated every industry. You used to have a hundred major defense contractors, really at five now. That's right. And they really pre- behave like a cartel, and they pay um, almost a brigade's worth of lobbyists, a couple thousand, that infect Washington D.C. Contractor gets charges way too much for product. 
who then pays lobbyists to pay politicians to affect more restrictions on competitors and, uh, and, and really more nonsense. And so it's a very unhealthy cycle. The next president must break up the cartel that is defense contractors, IT, big tech, insurance, banking. There's a, there's a really powerful book I read, um, actually referred by my daughter. It's great when your kids start referring you stuff and educating you. It's called The Myth of Capitalism. I highly encourage your, your audience to read it. And it's by Jake Tepper. And it it basically makes the case that the problem in America with income oh, read it. with income yeah. inequality. Jonathan uh, Jonathan Tepper. This is this is not new. This came. This is a uh, that's three or four years, years old. old. Yeah. Six, okay. Yeah, I read this book. And it just we have way over consolidated everything. And man, we saw that loud and clear in the defense space as well. Yeah, there's five of them now, right? General, we've got, we've gone through the process. Boeing, Lockheed, Northrop. Uh, General Raytheon, Dynamics. General Dynamics. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and they can, and they're almost one company. When you're a five, you're not really five companies. No, you're really because one they, company. they jointly bet That's on right. stuff, and it's it's competition at most. Right. You take this one, I'll take this one. You take that one. It's cool. I'll take the next one. And uh, it, they, they're all bullying the same buyer. It's a cartel. Right. Makes sense. Now, let me ask you this. For somebody... Uh, uh, that's looking on private versus pr- uh, uh, public, right? If I'm choosing to give you the money, do I want somebody uh, like you to become as powerful as possible where all of a sudden you're saying you have 73 aircraft, 767, you have all these guys. Was there ever a moment where you're sitting there saying to yourself, I can do this better than you guys, flow everything through me? Did you ever go through that yourself? No. I mean, in some areas, we were, we were definitely better because we could operate with such a smaller footprint. Where were you not better than the U.S. government? Uh, look, we never, we never attempted to, endeavored to do big line formations, divisions, brigades of tanks, and it was not our thing at all. But I would argue that for insurgencies, for, um, uh, for those problems— we had a much better model, and we could do it better than the U.S. than the U.S. military. What I wanted, what I really pushed for in 2017 was to get Trump to change tactics in Afghanistan mm-hmm. to prevent the debacle that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, Bannon, Steve Bannon, a friend of mine, um, said, we're going to debate Afghan policy, write an op-ed. So I did. I wrote it to the Wall Street Journal, submitted for an audience of one, Trump read it while he was sitting at the Oval Office desk, circled it. He called in the National Security Advisor, who had just asked to send 70,000 more troops to Afghanistan. Trump said, I don't like your your plan. Do this one. H.R. McMaster, sure he's a nice guy, but he was a three-star armor officer who wanted to be a four-star, and he wasn't going to do anything contrary to the Pentagon. What I advocated was basically a version of what the special operations community had done effectively, which uh-huh. is to train Afghan forces in a way that was cost-effective and you actually live with, train with, and fight with. Put that mentor model with them so that you have, well, it's the same thing the East India Company did for 250 years, building local forces. About 5% were expats, and the, other, um, the, other, the rest of them were locals. But by having the continuity with professionals, that provide leadership, intelligence, communications, medical, logistics, expertise attached to them. It's like, a, it's like giving a, a big brother training wheel support to those units. And there was like 90-some battalions that we're going to attach to. 
Uh, so it would have been about 3,600. And then there was about 90 aircraft we would have bought, brought. We already had a lot there. Or, um, uh, or just taken over the Afghan aircraft, but fly them effectively. The U.S. makes the mistake that we, they built the Afghan army in the mirror image of the U.S. military, heavily dependent on contractor support, heavily dependent on high-end laser-guided bombs and all the other stuff, really forgetting how the Afghans wage war and doing the basics of logistics. So we're going to support the Afghan troops effectively. People love, people love to say people love veterans, but they hate contractors. But really, in this case, it was the same thing. Just a soft guy going back to serve again with reliable air power that would show up. And then you take away the real source of corruption in the Afghan forces was the fuel, the payroll, the munitions, food. Uh, and you basically take some, put an accounting firm in charge of that, take that away from the Afghans. And we could have done, we could have saved about 95% of what the U.S. was spending. I mean, meaning our, our, our program cost less than 5%. And... Uh, there was a big policy meeting in at Camp David, the summer of 2017. I was supposed to go as a backseat to the agency, and I was blocked by Mattis. And, um, and by Mattis? Yeah. Mattis was a five-star, basically he was a five-star general as the SecDef, as conventional as a day is long. And, and the sad thing is, for all that money and all those flags, nobody has been held account for wasting blood and treasure in Afghanistan, and it's disgusting. Those Who's, guys, who should be those guys, those guys all have board seats. They all have their full pensions, and they lost. They lost us. They lost the taxpayers, hundreds of billions of dollars, and we and we just pissed away a lot of great Americans in an effort that uh, was was unnecessarily wasteful. Eric, how many? How much of your two billion dollar contract you got was for Afghanistan? Mm, probably a third. A third of it was from Afghanistan. You guys was six hundred plus million dollars of it. Okay, so so let me ask this. You know, for me, um, in the last and, whatever, and, and the biggest parts of those would have been building the Afghan border police, building the Afghan narcotics interdiction unit. Um, we did a lot of aviation support, flying supplies to uh, all the remote bases of the U.S. guys, and then some of it was for diplomatic security. Do you think, you know, the last few years, lowest trust the U.S. population has in the uh, politicians as well as mainstream media? They just don't trust them, right? Why would they? You can't blame them. Then you got CIA, FBI, lowest it's ever been in a long time. Do you think we need those organizations? And if you had it your way, if you had the influence, would you have the military be set up the way it is right now? Would you have 50 PMCs compete against each other to provide the best service for the uh, for the U.S. government? I think one of the best roles that a PMC could do, here's the thing. We have a post office. Mm-hmm. That's a federal government activity. Sure. You have FedEx. Mm-hmm. You can drop off a FedEx package. In some cases, you can pick up at a, at a post office. But the difference is FedEx operates as a private sector benchmark. It, because, you know, Fred Smith wrote the paper proposing FedEx, I think, while he was at Harvard. And they said, that's a terrible idea, and they gave him a C. Yeah, well, hold my beer. He That's does right. it. Yep. And and now FedEx serves as a benchmark, and it's definitely made the post office wake up and be more efficient. Maybe not perfect yet, but it's definitely better than it was. And that's the best role that the private sector can be is to provide competitive um, pricing 
reality checks on, on what some of these things should be. You didn't answer the question. So do you think... I'm should, asking, no, should it, should it all be PMCs? No, absolutely not. But there's a lot of functions that the government does that can be bid out and let the government bid to do that or let the private sector. I remember in like 2005, the Bush administration was, um, they were talking about hiring 2,000 or 5,000 more Border Patrol agents. Mm-hmm. And we got called to testify as to how much it would cost to train those. And CBP... Customs and Border Police were saying it was going to be like $180,000 to train each Border Patrol agent. And we got called. We looked at the, at the curriculum to say, well, we can do that for about 40. And so we were not very popular with CBP <laughs> because we could, we, and no shit, we knew our costs. We could do it for a quarter of what they were. Who, who, uh, who should the American people trust more to do the work better? PMCs or the U.S. government? Like if, if, if I'm, again, because the, the, the government has lost a lot of credibility last few years, right? Who, who should they trust more? You guys, PMCs? First, first, or of, all, first of all, we sh- as a country, we should just spend less. Our government will suck less if it's smaller. We spend too much in social programs. We spend uh, way too much in military spending. We don't have the money. I mean, we're $34 trillion in debt. Sure. We have grave sure. danger of our currency collapsing. Putting the military, putting all the agencies on a severe diet is a very healthy thing because it will force people to, to start to think outside the box to say, this is the mission I still got to get done. I don't have this, this billion-dollar fire hose to throw money at problems. Um, it, anytime a business goes into crisis, right, when it goes into a bankruptcy and you have a bankruptcy trustee and they come in and they – they force people to realign their thinking. That's it. Oftentimes, it's very healthy for a business. We need to do that to all aspects of our government. So I'm not trying to avoid your question, but but competitive reality check benchmarking is absolutely necessary to to really make our military spend less. I mean, remember, in defense spending, we spend more than the next 17 countries combined. It's insane. That's, that's grotesque, and we're not that good at it. I mean, now you have, you have the Houthis, which are basically behaving like long-range pirates armed by the Iranians, have closed the Babel Mandab, the waterway, and, and is really choking off Egypt. Egypt is in danger, grave danger. Forty um, percent of their GDP depends on Suez Canal traffic, which has now dropped by 90 percent. Last week, the Egyptian currency devalued over 25%. Insane. So you have 110 million people, a very poor population, prone towards Muslim Brotherhood, Ikhwan um, attitudes. The only reason the Ikhwan is not in power there is because Sisi took over. You talk about danger, the, all the equipment of the Egyptian army in the hands of a Muslim Brotherhood leader, that's a big problem. Yeah, so again, I'm asking this question maybe for my own self-interest, and I think there's other people like me that are interested, meaning, it, you know, there's a group of people that will sit there and say, well, you know, they're all doing it for money. Uh, the NBA plays the game for money. People make movies to make money. If you can do it with your passion and you make the money, even better. You know, capitalist builds a business and does it better. If you're not getting paid a wage, 
you're not a free man, you're a slave. That's right. And, so, and that yeah. goes back to the message you said earlier. I, I, I get And it, people join the military and you have to pay them well to do so. Well, we're not. We're not even giving them a raise. I mean, right. according to what, what's we're, happened we're, with we're, inflation. We're, we're, blowing, we're blowing a lot of totally. money that we should just be paying guys directly. On, on lots of nonsense that's well, but, on the but again, well, Could it actually work if the U.S. government, just like you're talking about the five contractors we have that were buying stuff through Boeing, you know, General Dynamics, all these guys, would it work if we had 50 PMCs that the government hired to work through? Would that, could that work? Think of it this way. In the continuum of statecraft, you have diplomacy on one end. So you have embassies and, and international conferences. Right. And on the other end, you have a military that is big and conventional, aircraft carriers and tank divisions and nuclear weapons. You really don't want to leave. The, you, don't, you don't want to have to deploy that ever because it's very expensive. They should be there fearsome with maximum deterrence like a big snapping dog waiting to be let off leash. Mm-hmm. But the middle is the intelligence world. And that's where we've fallen down because the agency, CIA – is not doing anywhere near the covert actions using the authorities that it was designed to do to solve some of these problems internationally. And, and now, and even more so, you have the Pentagon um, trying to wade into all these little small conflicts, mm-hmm. and they basically crowd out the private sector from helping and correcting these, these, these situations. You know, like Guyana? Guyana <laughs> is Venezuela, in, the oil? Correct. Yeah. So Venezuela wants to take... 70% of Guyana's land, mm-hmm. the Essequibo area. And that is a perfect example of Guyana needing a PMC. They need surveillance. They need some specialty manpower to train and advise them. They need some lift aircraft. They need some maritime interdiction capability, all of which a PMC can do. But the Pentagon goes waiting in there, backed by the big five, to say, ah, we're here to sell some helicopters and we're right. going to sell an aircraft, and it's all nonsense. And and Guyana is going to get rolled, and I predict they'll get uh, they will they will get pressurized hard here by April or May. Okay, so let's so now you have another country that's going to get damaged due to a lack of American credibility and success. I I, I don't disagree, but uh, so if 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 an expat goes to PMC. You know, when you join the army, you join the navy. Hey, I solemnly swear, and you're kind of given your oath that you know uh, you're gonna. Div- what, is there a an oath when they join a PMC, or no? It's just a job. So, meaning, well, why when, would when, I when keep guys when, when guys went to work for Blackwater? Yeah, they swore the same oath that they did when they joined the military. Why does it matter if I'm doing it for a private contractor, though? Because we serve. Because we are Americans working for America. Did you guys ever take contracts for a company countries that are not in America? Sometimes training contracts, sure. Training contract. Yeah. But nothing more than that. It was all training. Nope. Okay. Training. So, so you know, when you're, when you're watching what's going on today, okay, you watch Ukraine, you watch, let's specifically stick to Ukraine for now, and then we'll get into some of the other ones. You watch Ukraine, and, hey, we're going to do a border, you know, uh, 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 bill, $118 billion. You guys are saying no to the border bill. Two weeks later, no, it's a $95 billion Bill, sixty billion is going to Ukraine, right? Yeah. And where that money is going to end up, you have no idea where that money is going to end up, right? And Kamala Harris is going to say, "We're going to keep spending money until dot dot dot." How similar is Ukraine to what we did with Afghanistan, and what's different about it? Um, Ukraine 
is a um, we need to bring that war to a close because all Ukraine is doing now is destroying itself demographically. They're chewing up the next generation of manpower that they can't really replace right now. They don't have enough man manpower. The, the Western defense base is pathetic. Um, and you're not going to out-conventional war the Russian bear. And um, a, a, I would say a ugly peace is better than a, whatever their idea of an ideal war is. Well, what is an ugly peace, though? Meaning freeze the lines, straighten the lines, accept, let them have Crimea, let them keep Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, whatever. They need to... Um, it is not certainly the tax. The, it's not the American taxpayer's obligation to spend another hundred billion dollars in Ukraine uh, when there has been significant corruption and 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 really nothing to show for it. But why do so many people support it, Eric? I mean, you're, you're saying that, so somebody may say it's easy for you to say. So should we just let a dictator do its part and you know kill all these innocent people that he's killing? Are you saying we leave it alone and we allow Putin to get what he wants? I mean, half the country voted for that, right? There, you know, the, the, the disgusting thing is all these people that say, ah, support Ukraine, spin a globe in front of them. 99% of them couldn't even find Ukraine on the map. So don't tell me what their opinion is. I, it, their opinion doesn't really matter because they're idiots. You think they're idiots? And I, 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 I think, I think all, a, a shocking amount of the people that have these strong social media opinions on right. Ukraine have no freaking idea where Ukraine is or what the realities are. And so I, I think um, <laughs> social media is, a, uh, is not a great influence on our body politic or on our society at all. I, I, I don't know if I disagree with you, but the question is somebody is converting these uh, people that you claim idiots, right? So the question to me comes, I, I read this quote uh, by this lady who said it the other day. One percent of the population controls the world. It's a smaller percentage, but you get the idea. Four percent of the population are their puppets. Ninety percent of the population are zombies. Five percent are trying to wake up the zombies. The one percent make sure that the four percent stops the five percent from waking up to ninety percent. I don't know if you caught that whole thing that we're going through. Okay, I think so. I was trying yeah. to do the math. Okay, so it's a lot of math going on here. For a guy that made a lot of money, I'm sure you're following through on the, on the math here. But the point is this. Forget the 90% of zombies, okay? The 1% that are, you know, advocating to the 5% of the 4% of their, you know, pro, not the prophets, but disciples. And they're going and selling everybody. These guys could be in mainstream media. These guys could be in, in business. These guys could be in Hollywood. Why are those guys, the people that are... Smart people, they're not dummies. Why do they think this is a good idea to give, keep giving Ukraine money? Is there an incentive behind closed doors to them that we don't know about? Is that the only thing that drives them? I or think, do some I of think, these guys I actually think, think we're doing the right thing? I think thing? people are highly susceptible to propaganda. Highly susceptible to propaganda. Yeah. Look, I, the, the Russians were wrong to invade Ukraine. Absolutely. But... I don't know that the the West could have also handled the whole situation much differently because there was all kinds of assurances made that NATO would not extend eastward after 1992. And from a Russian perspective, now they lost 22 million people in World War II mm -hmm. defeating the Nazis. 
And so for them looking out and seeing more unfriendly countries on their border than any time since, what, May of 1940, that's a, uh, that's a problem. That's a red line for them. And they kept saying, stop, stop, stop. This idea of making a Ukraine a NATO member, bad idea. It, 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 it shouldn't have been on the table beforehand. And you know, I even offered, I offered the administration before the invasion because I noticed that there was the, the Russians were even canceling orders, defense orders, uh, at the end of 2020 before the – no, at the end of 2021. And I wrote a paper and I sent it up through a, a, a friend in uh, JSOC without my name on it so they can't use the I hate Eric Prince card. And it basically laid out that at that point there was some almost 500 aircraft set to be retired from the U.S. In- inventory. Mm-hmm. So literally scheduled to be flown from an active squadron to the desert, Davis Monthan Air Force Base, the Boneyard, and parked for eternity, written off to zero value to the taxpayers. I said, make that a lend-lease package. Almost like when Roosevelt gave 50 destroyers and some aircraft and a bunch of guns to the Brits in, uh, in like 1940, lend-lease. And I said, make it a combination of lend-lease and, and a flying tigers, a good use of a private contracted capability. Because Ukraine needed air power. They needed a lot more air power. So I said, perfect. Fly, there was, there was 50-some uh, F-16s, 55 F-15s, and another 40 um, A-10s. Perfect. Fly those to Ukraine. Biden can make an announcement. Ukraine is not going to be a NATO a, mem- a, ne- a member of NATO, but they're going to have an air force, and here it is. And I could have put contracted pilots in those aircraft. And you know what? If you lose twenty or thirty percent of the aircraft, that's okay. That's what ejection seats are for. That would have been a significant deterrent force. The whole program would have cost like four hundred million bucks. Which is this was the one you're talking about? No. No, I, we looked at um, we looked at buying Motorzich, which is a company that makes turbine engines, and some some idiot made wild allegations about that. It was this just, was three years ago. That was a, that was a that was a simple plan to buy a turbine maker. But Got no, uh, went all the way up to Sullivan and the National Security Council, and of course they never acted on it. But uh, again, because you have people in those in those jobs without experience that have never deployed aircraft themselves. They've never, they've never done that. So they get told by some Air Force officer, well, that's impossible. They could never staff those aircraft. Nonsense. There are hundreds of former military aircraft flown by contractors today in America, and they're flown as opposition squadrons training against the U.S. Air Force and U.S. Navy for their readiness. So it was a very applicable model, and it could have, I, I believe, 150 ex-U.S. military combat aircraft showing up in Ukraine, that's a significant deterrent, and I bet you it would have stopped the war before it even started. So why'd you stop doing this? Why'd you stop? Why, why don't you still do the business? I mean, I, you sound like cause, you're... Because cause, cause I'm... <laughs> because the left and the idiots in Washington so hate any ideas that are innovative or different that interrupt the money train, the very corrupt money train, from the Uniparty, okay. Lindsey Graham just as bad as, as any Democrat on spending more money to defense contractors and washing it through. And what do we have to show for it? What, what great military successes do we have for the last 25 years? Remember, after 
what did the Pentagon want to do, right? So Bush goes to meet with his national security cabinet five days after 9-11. While the Pentagon is still smoldering, the most expensive military in the world at, at that point with like a $700 billion budget, they wanted to do bombs, missiles, and a ranger raid in uh, October of 2001. And they wanted to wait until the following April and do a mechanized invasion via Pakistan. That's the best the Pentagon came with. It was the CIA, Gopher Black, and uh, Counterterrorism Center. And they said, money, authorities, three weeks, the flies will be walking on the eyeballs of our enemies. That was innovative. They had done uh, asymmetric unconventional warfare. And with, with less than 100 special operators and, and case officers backed by air power, smashed the Taliban. They were truly on the run. That model worked for six months until the big conventional Pentagon showed up, and then they screwed it up for the next 19 and a half years and basically replicated the same Soviet battle plan. If you read a book called The Bear, that Bear, the Bear Went Over the Mountain, that's what the Soviets did. In fact, our base locations were the same places the Soviets were, followed the same plan. So you telling that story, what's your point of telling that story? Are you telling it to say how bad it is right now? If that's what you're doing, why did you get out of the business if you think you're fully qualified to be able to expose that and make it better? Why did you get out of the business? Uh, because the, the, the Blackwater was so attacked and, and the regulatory state was thrown at us. I, I paid about $2.5 million a month in legal fees for two years. $60 million. Yeah. Paid the highest per capita fine in State Department history from Hillary Clinton for no actual damage to national security. So they, of all the stuff that was thrown at us because Black Order was bad after, after Nisera Square and the left really came for us, we fought off all the audits, Defense Contract Management Agency, and all, we came through that all clean. But the one place we could not fight, we couldn't litigate, was on export licenses because if we, if we litigated, they would stop all export licenses and it would stop the business because you have to be able to export body armor or a helmet or a gun to do a security or a training job. And so they stuck us with the highest per capita fine. And even in their study, they acknowledged that there was no actual export of uh, no damage to national security. So what they ended up fining us for was exporting helmets, um, body armor plates, etc. So if we were working for the State Department, diplomatic security, Another part of the State Department does the licensing called mm -hmm. Defense Trade Controls, mm -hmm. and they're kind of moving at their own pace. And so we have a license into them to export stuff for our guys, which the Diplomatic Security Service is demanding. I need 50 guys in this town in Iraq, you know, next week. Go, go, go. My license is in. It hasn't come back. I'm not going to send these guys naked. Yeah, we sent the body armor. We sent the helmets, and they find us like $500,000 per helmet. That, that kind of nonsense. And it was just politics. So I started the business as a way to stay connected to the community I loved and to serve my country and to just get repeatedly kicked in the head. Yeah, I'm about done with that. How many people uh, uh, like, how many PMCs do we have right now the size of Blackwater? Peak, when you guys were doing 850 a year in America. The, there's, there's really not any integrated ones left. And they're all, and they've, you know, like Blackwater now is owned by BlackRock or no, by, by Apollo another freaking New York hedge fund, and that's run like a, like a typical Beltway bureaucratic firm. But you getting out, you're contributing to that, no? 
if you if you get out and because think about it okay if you so how many people like you are there and i know what you're thinking you're like do you know how hard this was do you understand how tough this job is i get that i i and, I, and honestly me. no it fair it's a fair criticism because if i look back i was um uh 2007 i was 36 years old 37 years old mm-hmm. I did not have an older me as a, as a mentor. Nobody that I knew in Washington or anywhere had gone through the regulatory proctology that we had, the bureaucratic assault, the media assault. I mean, at that point, I was, I was doing, we were doing very legitimate covert action programs for the agency that I was even involved in personally on top of all the training and security aviation and stuff. And so we kind of built and prepared to help our country deal with threats abroad, not planning for the bureaucratic and media and political assault that we came under back in Washington. But if I could send a, if I could send myself a note back to a, when I started the business, I would have just said, don't work for the state department. They're not worth it for all the great work we did. I don't care what happens to them. Not worth my people. Find somebody else. That's that's the one thing. What else? Uh, but even having gone through the, all the, the, the shit, the gauntlet, even if I had to, uh, pare it back down to a 30 or a 50 man business down from a thousand man or 3000 man, I would have, I hindsight, I probably would have done it because it was a, it was such an extraordinary team. They were the best. That team, that management team punched so far above its weight, it would run circles around the Fortune 500. How many of them are still there at, uh, with uh, whoever? None. No, okay. So your kids, you have 12 kids, right? So so we have a double Brady Munch family. Okay. I had seven, she had five. So Seven is still a lot. You, oh, yeah. So you got a good set. I got four. I'm like, you know, I'm a small timer compared to you having seven and 12 kids. Okay, so seven, 12 kids. Do you, do you think the future looks bright for those guys if somebody doesn't choose to expose what these guys are doing on the military side because the fewer fewer guys like you out there you create fewer competition if you do the bullies are just going to go more and you know they're going to they're going to be able to take advantage of the system more and have more and more control and my my concern is the following so you ran a pmc okay successful one 850 a year you know what the next PMC is going to look like probably robots ai god knows what the next level of pmc is going to look like We've seen it. I mean, it's not like it's not a believable thing, right? You see in the military where a guy creates, he's got all these. There's, a, there's an interesting window to what that looks like. That's what I'm saying. I think there, it is a, there, a small a, little there's window. A, there's a book called The Profession written by Stephen Pressfield. And that's the guy that wrote uh, Gates of Fire mm. about Thermopylae. He also wrote um, The Lion's Gate, which is a very interesting uh, book on the 67 war. But he wrote The Profession, which is written in like 2030 set in 2030. And um, at that point, the Iranians invade Saudi Arabia. They take the oil fields and the U.S. because of basically Middle East fatigue, doesn't send any troops. And uh, so what do they do? The Saudis end up hiring the uh, the successor company to Blackwater, who cleans up and does it. And it's a very interesting perspective how the, that force is organized and uh, a lot more mobile, fast, and drones. And I would say the 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 real lesson out of the Ukraine conflict now uh, is the that small FBV drones or small quadcopters that can drop munitions 
even in a high electronic warfare environment, is exceedingly potent and a true asymmetric capability that the U.S. military is, it's, I mean, the Russians are paying attention. They are building and learning. I was just at the Saudi defense show a couple weeks ago, and there's all kinds of Saudi firms marketing their loitering munitions um, and with videos of them smashing Western tanks, Paladin howitzers, and, and M777, you know, guns, uh, un, you know, without without damn it without without stopping so it's um the u.s military needs to pay attention to those things because the the change of uh, of equipment and tactics and warfare is very real who's the modern day eric prince is there eric princes right now trying to do what you did or no are there any formidable ones that are ambitious driven crazy enough to do it i'm not saying i wouldn't build a pmc again okay good all right, maybe we're bringing him out of retirement today. Announcement's been made. Uh, okay, so let me let me continue my questions. This is good. I'm 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 enjoying where we're going with this. I mean, look, what I what I really tried to get the Trump administration to accept, and even the Biden administration, was a a rationalization, a stay behind plan for Afghanistan to keep the lights on, to keep the Afghan government in power, sure. put the Taliban on their knees, and make them take a deal. Yeah, that would have been a that would have been a full spectrum PMC. But instead, I would not. I would million dollars, and and now billions of dollars right. every year in whatever aid. I would not do a PMC to just play defense and be a bodyguard for the State Department. No, I would do do it if you, you if we could actually do offensive combat units that could go and do small scale counterinsurgency kind of stuff. The Russians contacted me in 2011. I went to Moscow. November. And they said, please come build a Blackwater here. Here's the land, all the rest. I actually went shooting with, uh, uh, with their alpha group. And that was, you know, this was before they went into Ukraine, even in 14. So there was a reset and mm-hmm. peace, love and happiness mm-hmm. with the Russians. Obviously, I said, no, I can't do that. But it was interesting. They fully embraced what the private sector can do. And um, are they doing it? Um. The Russians have never really integrated air land battle and maneuver and the integrating, fusing that surveillance. Um, I would argue, I think I could have built a better PMC than Prigozhin did, but... Um, Wagner Group? Yeah. Because that was a very, very conventional force. Did you guys ever do anything? Did you ever meet them or no? Never did. Never had a communication, nothing? Zero point zero 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 zero. Got it. Because some word talks about Blackwater offered service to yeah. Wagner Group. Yeah, that that's a a <laughs> that's a newspaper, if you can call it that, funded by an Iranian communist. From the two-day part, you got to give them credit. It's actually fuck, a pretty, pretty good spin if it's... Uh, fuck those guys. <laughs> who, who is this company, by the way? Do you know? It's, uh, can you it's, pull this it, up? I'm actually curious. It's, it's, I, it's funded by Pierre Omidar. Okay. Whose parents it. were Iranian communists, which, which they stayed in Iran. Yeah, that's from the Mossadegh camp. Al Jazeera wrote it, or who wrote it? Intercept. Intercept wrote it. Okay. So uh, uh, so you're there. You're in Russia. They're wanting you to create a PMC there. This is a year after you... So 2011. So this is a year after you sold. So 13 years ago, you're 41, I want to say, 40 years old, okay? So you still, you know, you have a lot of the stuff is fresh in your mind. If you really wanted to do it, you could do it. Did you ever meet Putin on your trip there or you never met him? Never okay. did. So l- let's stay on this point here with the PMCs, but also a little bit with uh, r- uh, Russia. So 
the, the, the House and Republicans push back on this border deal that was disguised as a border deal for $118 billion, but only $20 billion was going to the border, $60 billion was going to Ukraine. Two weeks later, they just come out and they call it the $95 billion bill. And, and all those numbers you're throwing around? Yeah. It's disgusting. They say, oh, we're going to spend $20 billion on the border? Right. It's all nonsense. It's all a game. And that's the problem. We can say the Republicans are in charge of Congress. Then if they really are, starve the beast. Be thalidomide. Cut everything down to size. We cannot afford all the nonsense that we're spending sure. money on. And the best thing America could do as a society, as a government, as a people, is put the whole thing on a very severe diet. I think a lot of people— Look at what Millet— in Argentina has done in like two months in office. That's right. It's the equivalent of him cutting a four or five hundred billion dollars out of American budget. That's what he's done in Argentina. That's right. That's right. God bless that man. Yeah, you saw the meeting with him any and Trump. Man, I don't know if you saw that. I, oh yeah, I was yeah, there. Yeah. I, I, look, anybody that campaigns with a chainsaw, yeah. I can identify with. Yeah. So so let me stay on this. One eighteen, then it go to ninety five, sixty going to Ukraine, sixty billion going to Ukraine. They say no, but hear me out. Let me get to my question. They say no. After they say no, the media blames the Republicans. All of a sudden, Navalny dies, okay? Whether it's a blood cloth, you know, a Ukrainian spy says it was blood cloth, but everybody else says no, Russian spies killed him. Whatever the story is, many people believe that Putin may have taken out his opponent. That's what a lot of people are saying. And if that's the case, then the following week, U.S. puts 500 sanctions on Russia, 500 sanctions on Russia, Three out of four banks in China, largest four, the largest banks in China, three out of four, all say moving forward, we're not doing business with China. These are all bigger than J.P. Morgan Chase in China. So bigger with China, or bigger with the, or doing business with the U.S. They will not do business with Russia. They will okay. not do business with Russia. So I can give you the banks' names, Rob. If you want to pull up the banks' names, I, I, uh, I believe you. I'm not yeah, questioning that. One of them, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, then China Construction Bank, I, Bank of China, I, ICBC. Yep. The only one that didn't do it that still allows is the Agricultural Bank of China, all bigger than J.P. Morgan Chase. How much of this do you think is? You've worked with the CIA before. You know how those guys work. You know if they want to overthrow. A, a government, a country, a president, a leader that they don't like, they can, they can, they can do it many different ways. Do you think there's I, anything I, going on here? I, I, I don't think, I, I think you think a little too highly of that organization anymore. I think too highly of that organization. I, I, you're, you're, I think you're uh, over-projecting what their capability is you, or what their willingness is. Let's change the capability. How about motive? Is their motive still high? If they want to get rid of somebody, do they still have high motive when they don't like somebody and say, let's target this guy, let's get rid of him? Is the motive still high? I, I don't know. I, com- I, I, I come back to the, um, the, the, you've heard of Havana syndrome? No. Um, pull up Havana syndrome. It's, uh, it started in Havana. There was U.S. diplomats working out of the embassy that suddenly got hit with effectively a microwave yeah, the weapon. Sounds, the sounds, yes. Yeah, microwave yes. weapon, and it's given yes. them serious TBI and screwing up their vision and hearing. And then it was in Colombia and Vienna mm-hmm. and Delhi mm-hmm. and even in Washington, D.C. And these are real problems, definitely caused by it's not it's not made up in people's minds. And for the agency to say, well, it's all in your head. That's a problem. That's that's that, that's an organization I have a problem with. If you're asking your people to go do difficult, dangerous things, right, because you're if you're sending a case officer out, they're literally 
committing an operational act, a crime that can get them killed in a country, to to convince someone to de- to, to betray their country or their friends, an operational act, an act of intelligence. Um, and yet they're not even uh, a- acknowledging these attacks on their own people. I have a problem with that. So do you think do you think Navalny was killed by Putin? Do you think Putin is a bad guy? Do you think some of this stuff that's happening simultaneously right after them saying no to the $95 billion, do you think games are being played or no? It's just whatever we see is exactly what it is. No, of course there's games being played. And, and look, <laughs> Putin has a uh, – opposi- opponents of Putin have a way of falling out of windows a lot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, obviously there's a, there's a lot of directed hits all through there for anybody that's opponent him. He, there is some kind of – there's a, some kind of a parliamentary election in March. So Navaldi having a, uh, having a fatal accident or whatever he had doesn't surprise me, sadly. Doesn't surprise you? No. From from being on the inside, not on the inside, Listen, maybe seal. I, I know you're not not going to say on the inside, but were there things, Eric? Were there things you knew that you know because you're you're getting certain contracts, you're communicating with certain people? Were there things you knew that the media would report on, and you're like, no way, that's what's happening. I'm part of that, and I know that's not what's going on right now. Were there things like uh, that? Uh, that happens. All the time, on a almost daily basis. H- how big of a scale was it? Or were just like small things? Ah, they're bullshitting. It's not a big deal, but they're bullshitting on this. Ah, that's not a big deal, but they're lying on this. Or some of the things were so big where you're like, "This is ridiculous." How they're selling on America and they're buying it. Some of uh, look, some of the nonsense that you see in the media is driven by uh, the competition of the internet. And so they are all in the race to be the first out with a story, which is not so well checked. And they try to make it sensational, to make it click-worthy, effectively clickbait. And uh, so, yeah, truth has definitely been the victim of uh, some really sloppy journalism. And then you add to that uh, nation-state-sponsored propaganda, whether it's from the Russian side or the Ukrainian side or the Chinese or Qatar or from different interest organizations in the United States. There's there's a lot of propaganda in the world. And so I I guess I try to cut through that. I travel a lot, and I meet with a lot of people that are firsthand participants in a lot of those things that are happening, and I can at least ask them what they saw happen. Got it. Got it. And that give you maybe a different kind of a... Yeah, because I wonder, some of the stuff we're seeing right now just feels like it's coming straight out of a movie. Like, it almost doesn't even make sense when you see some of these things. Like, e- even a, a, a maybe a recent thing, event that just happened, AT&T, a couple days ago. I don't know if it happened to you. Yeah, I think, I think that was a Chinese cyber attack. You think so? Yeah. Why do you say that? Um, I, would, I would predict that was a warning. Uh, a, a trial run before they, they go do more aggressive things on Taiwan in April or May. So is that a way of I, 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 I would I would expect um, provocation by their maritime militia or some of the islands. So Because there's Taiwan Island, Formosa, mm-hmm. and there's smaller ones like Quimoy and Matsu, which are right up against the Chinese, actually the Chinese mainland. I can see some incidents there where they seize those or stage an incident or an accident and they end up putting hundreds of Chinese maritime militia, which are just PLA troops, called maritime militia, mm-hmm. uh, and they'll see what the West does. Is Biden going to roll an aircraft carrier 
if that happens. And so they will test and see if there's consequences, test and see if there's consequences. They now do hundreds of Chinese Air Force aircraft that overfly Taiwanese airspace all the time without consequence. They shoot missiles over Taiwan, over Japanese territory even, without consequence. If you allow them, China is an ancient society, and they they will salami slice. They will keep pushing, right? You know how you cut a, you can cut it really thin, mm-hmm. and and they might take uh, three little slices, but they've moved. They've moved the ball in their direction where they want to be. And Trump was the first president that came along that said, "Hey, they're like a neighbor that moves the yard fence." into your yard six inches a year. And Trump was the first one that said, hey, get the hell back on your side of the line. I can tell you I spent enough time in China during the Trump administration. They were spooked by him. They were they were the trade policies and uh, the controls on certain technologies not going to China really spooked them. What's your level of speculation of the, on this being China? If you were to say, you know, over under, I'd say 70% is China, 50% is China. What would you say? On the AT&T incident? 70%. Okay. So let's just say that's 70% China. Are they doing it and telling U.S. that we did it? Like, are yep. they doing... Okay. So they're doing it and they're did saying... Break contact on Taiwan and or, or more to follow. Got it. To say we are capable of doing way more than this if you screw with this. Okay. So let me ask... Let me go a little bit deeper with this because when with that... A lot, and lots of asymmetric capability inside the United States already. What does it look like? Give us a... Paint a picture of how ugly this could be. Well, what China is capable of. Look, China, from a CI, counterintelligence perspective, yeah. they've had the Confucius Institutes at American universities for decades, which are Chinese government-funded interest and communication centers on, on campuses. They have the Thousand Talents program, where they would task smart Chinese right. to go... Thousand Talent program. Thousand Talent program, uh, where they would task smart Chinese to go study in a specific university to gather intel on a specific thing. So they're tasked to go burrow in, learn, do, follow, take that tech back to China. Okay, They have the United Front Works Department all through the United States. So you have a, a lot of Chinese diaspora that are here that, that the Ministry of State Security still has their hooks in. Um. Uh, and because there's family members back in China that they they can hold in danger to make that person in America do what they want. Um, if the if the FBI was serious about CI, the the Communist Party members have to check in and go for training at least every six months. So there's a uh, it's called the general I think it's called the general management management department. It's like the HR department of the Chinese Communist Party, and they oversee the training you have to do every year. It's almost like reserve duty where they have to come in and get their party indoctrination. If they were smart, surveil every consulate, every known Chinese facility, and see who's going in and out of there. Those are the CCP members that are here in the United States working, living, studying, uh, and some of them some of them even working for the U.S. government. So, yeah, they have a massive – uh, installed base of influence and covert action already, and that's more the mostly on the collection side. And because of the the massive illegal flow of migration, there's a lot of Chinese males, military age males, 
they're not all Chinese soldiers. They're not all Chinese spies. There's a lot of men. There's like 40 million males of marriage age in China with no prospects of marrying a female because of sex selection abortion. When they had one child policy, the parents would abort a, a female baby and have a male. So they have, so these, these dudes are in China with a economy, not doing great with no prospects of a female. They say, hell, I'm, I'm going to America. Now, if only 2% of those millions are bad, still really bad. So, again, that's a, that is a serious CI problem that needs to be mopped up. On the cyber side, I mean, AT&T, phone goes out, right? So can they... Not, knocked out 911 service. That's right. So can they... What does their cyber attack capabilities look like? How, like, if you were to paint a picture, what could it look uh, like? Quite significant. And, and if, they have, if there's Huawei switches and any of that Chinese telecom infrastructure in the United States, which is what uh, Trump was right to ban mm-hmm. and to push other allies to ban. When the daughter was trying to come in from Canada and she was doing business with Iran and exactly. Huawei no longer could do business here. Yep. I remember that. Yep. Um, but before that, there was a lot of Huawei switches installed mm-hmm. and so who knows what uh what backdoors that uh they you know Huawei was started by a ex PLA colonel uh from the intelligence business mm-hmm. so yeah there's no 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 shocker there so but, but but paint a picture meaning for example do they have the capability of the week of the election to have 300,000 phones you know in in make life challenging in certain zip codes, certain areas that maybe are going to be politically voting on one side or the other to keep the, the left or Biden in? Is the, are they capable of being able to do something like that? They understand asymmetric warfare very, very well. So, yeah, think of the permutations of, of nonsense that they can pull. They'll probably do it. Okay. So let's just say they do do it. You saw- Look, what they are doing now yeah. is sponsoring the fentanyl epidemic. China. Absolutely, unequivocally fact. The precursor drugs produced actually around Wuhan, mm-hmm. oddly enough, the same mm-hmm. place that uh, COVID leaked from. And uh, the stuff is shipped to Venezuela, Venezuela to Mexico, formulated into fentanyl. And think about it. All these fentanyl deaths, like 109,000 Americans killed by fentanyl. And it's, you know, a normal drug dealer doesn't want to make a drug that kills his customers. Dead customers don't pay. They don't buy, right? That is absolutely pushed to a fatal level as a, as a true disruptive destruction to American society. And they, sh- and they need to feel consequences for that. The, da- the son of YouTube's former CEO, Susan, just died from uh, fentanyl. So yeah. YouTube's CEO, former, yeah. she resigned a couple, couple years ago. Her son just passed away. Tragic death from fentanyl. Yes. So I'm all writing about it. Okay. But I'm, I'm trying to go a little bit. Uh, did you watch the movie uh, Leave America Alone or Leave America Behind? The movie with Barack Obama that he was the... Have you seen that movie or no? No. No, I haven't seen that. Why are you smiling? <laughs> I wouldn't say Barack Leave Obama. Leave the world behind. I wouldn't, I, Barack Obama would not be on my top 10 filmmaker list. Well, if there's anything that I would want you to watch is this one. Not because it's a great movie. <laughs> when you watch it, you'll see why. I'm surprised you haven't seen it, by the way. It is a very weird movie. Very. There's a scene in this movie where a massive ship, okay, is coming towards, we can't play this obviously for obvious reasons, but a massive ship is coming towards the beach 
And the daughter, this baby is sitting there saying, that ship's getting closer and closer and closer and closer until eventually it just comes through. Planes start crashing. Teslas are all driving into each other. I mean, it's a pretty epic movie if you've not seen this. And he is the executive producer with Julia Roberts and a couple other people. Then a movie is being launched right after that called Civil War. We were talking earlier off camera. And my question is the following. Um, If let's just say election day, I think it's November 5th is a Tuesday. If on that day there is some gamification going on where certain people don't have access to voting and others do, and the election goes in a certain way. How ugly do you think it'll be in America? Gamification? Yes. What do you mean by Gamifying, that? meaning they can gamify and manipulate is yeah, what I'm I, saying. Look, um, uh, a lot of countries have moved back to paper ballots and vote on that day. Let's do that. Simple. You no, think we're going to do that? No chance of hacking. We should. You think we're going to do that? I think state by state, uh, we should. Absolutely. Not should. Not should. The, the, the should is a different. There's a lot of... You know, things we should be doing, but as a country, uh, you know, again, if in any possible way there's manipulation gone and there is phones off, phones not working, certain things not happening, you know, uh, places you're going to want to vote, maybe it's not working. There's challenges with technology, with software in that area that is causing you to wait in line for eight hours and families are sitting there saying, dude, I can't wait for eight hours. My kids are waiting out the house. I got to put them down. If there's that level of frustration where a mom or dad is going to say, I just can't wait anymore. I got to go home. And that affects the election. And there's proof of that. How ugly could it get in the States? And if no, uh, if no clear candidate wins 270 electoral votes, the, the founding fathers are so, are so brilliant. They thought of, they thought of everything. So it goes to the House of Representatives and the House decides. It happened before. Uh, it was uh, John Quincy Adams versus Andrew Jackson. Nobody won the Electoral College, clearly. It went to the House. John Quincy Adams won. And then Andrew Jackson came back four years later and crushed him. So you're not worried about it. You're not worried about 2024. There's a lot of people of that are. Of course I'm worried about it. There's a process, and let's follow the Constitution. I mean, of course. I mean, people want to follow the Constitution. You say it in a way where you're assuming everybody will. Do, do you think uh, that the concept of civil war is capable of happening in the States anytime soon or not in America? Not the way the founders created it. I've read a lot of American Civil War history and the the... The feel and the vibe in the country and, um, yeah, some of, the, some, of, some of that feels like it would today. But here's the thing. A civil war would not necessarily be it's, – it's really going to be uh, rural versus urban. That's the difference. It's not, a, it's not a regional. It's not a north versus south. It's rural, it's rural versus urban is where this divide is, which is a very different, different equation. T- tell me more. Um, Trump won in like in 2016, Trump won like 3,100 counties. Hillary Clinton won like 80. Yet the ones that she did win are big urban metro top 20 metropolitan blue cities. Yes. 
So if that becomes a civil war, it becomes a very unpopular place to be. Not because those are those places don't don't have enough food, don't have enough water. That becomes very very bad for them. Are you a preparer? Not really. No. No. Live a simple life. You know, you're not you know concerned about what could happen. Yeah, I have a few guns. <laughs> I have a few. <laughs> I have a few friends. <laughs> Just a few. Is that what it is? There's a couple. You got like a uh, you know. And, and, and a great alumni association. <laughs> great alumni association. Uh, who, who, who out of all our enemies do you fear the most? Like if you were to say our most formidable enemies, who would you say are the enemies that you fear the most? Look, the sad thing is if the left had not done the lie of the Trump-Russia collusion bullshit, mm-hmm. which is provenly, proven to yeah. be bullshit sure. after $50 million of, of investigation— if they'd not done that, Trump could have made a deal with Putin on Ukraine, and it would have pulled you uh, uh, with Russia on Ukraine, etc. Pulled Russia in from the cold and pulled them out of the orbit of China. Right? The U.S. policy for hundred years, uh, and even even before we really got involved in Europe, the goal was to keep German industry away from Russian resources. But now, we've pushed Russian resources into the hands of Chinese industry. And really, Russia is in a subjugated role. So I think the the medium and long-term security interest of the United States is to uh, bury the hatchet with the Russians and pull them away from an orbit of China. Because culturally, we have a lot more in common with Russia than we do with China or Japan or Korea or India. Fact. Um, so our major threat, the major threat to liberty in America is still the Chinese Communist Party. When you, when you read the statements that she makes to the standing committee, uh, there's a great article written in Foreign Affairs by uh, Matt Pottinger. And he actually takes chunks of Xi's statements that don't normally get translated into English. And he says, prepare for great conflict and it is basically the job, the mission of this Chinese Communist Party to remake the world in the image of the Chinese Communist Party and to overthrow the Westphalian order. Now, if you've never heard of the Westphalian order. I know you have. But it's basically the, the role of the modern nation state and our role as citizens within that. And they want to remake it into the role of just like China. Hell no to that. And... I think the next administration, and China has a, for like the last 19 centuries, it's been one of the biggest economies, if not the biggest in the world. But they have a habit of coming together under a strong dictator and then, you know, a century later fragmenting apart. I think it's better for China to be a bit more uh, diffuse and and less controlled by Beijing. Uh, And that is in all of our interests, even especially, especially the neighbors of China, would especially agree with that. Because what, what they, they don't want to be scenified. And by the way, their economy isn't as good as people think it is. They're, they're nope. getting hammered right now. You know, it's Correct. Look, when they, look what they did to Jack Ma. Right? Jack Ma is like a combination of Jeff Bezos and um, Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Like literally an amazing tech innovator. And Je- so Jack Ma started Alibaba, which is a 10 times the volume that Amazon does. And all this, he made some 
comments critical of the government and the central bank and the CCP, and instantly he's disappeared from view. Like literally one of the wealthiest guys in China, he disappears, and some months later he's found lecturing to an elementary school, and the, and the media announced that he'd embraced supervision. Whoa. Okay? So that that's the message they've done to their tech sector. I can tell you that the Chinese money is fleeing China as much as humanly possible. They're going to Europe. They're going to Dubai. Anywhere they can. There, there's a huge Chinese population in Australia that's gotten out because they want to live free and not be under the, the boot of the CCP. Where is Jack Ma nowadays? He is in China. Still. Uh, under supervision. About three, four years ago, no, not even, three years ago, he made a trip to Spain to basically clear out bank accounts to sign them over, and he was surrounded by 12 Ministry of State security agents while his family is held hostage back in China. So they hold him by the balls. This all happened after a speech he gave. I don't know if you saw mm-hmm. the speech he gave. A little bit critical. It wasn't like overly critical. Yeah. That was it. He wasn't throwing down. No, he was, wasn't throwing down. They're like, this is it. You can't talk like this. Um, you can't talk. Where are we united at in America? Like, if you were to say the left, right, center, everybody, what, what topics are we united on that you see? Is there anything we're united on? A country is a country when its people have some commonly def- commonly uh, held beliefs. And if we can't even agree on what is male and female anymore, we have a problem, right? The Democrats' last candidate for the Supreme Court could not identify, could not define, supposedly some Harvard-trained lawyer, couldn't define what a woman is. So that's a problem. The first, the last civil war kicked off over states' rights. It was over trade, and it was over slavery, and people went to war over that. Maybe it's worth going to war over defining what a gender is, because I certainly know what a gender is, and there are some things I'll I'll fight for. Yeah, that's the part, right? When you're you got you got kids, and your kids get into it, you bring them in. Like I got grandkids now. Well, yeah. Congratulations! I'm far away from having grandkids. My <laughs> oldest is twelve. I swear, if I, if I become a grandfather soon, I'll be very upset at him. <laughs> but uh, and impressed slightly, but more more upset. But um, so I got kids, and you know when these guys get into it and they fight, and as a father, you you first let them do their thing. And there's levels of fights, right? Level one, level two, level three. They got right. six, seven, maybe eight, nine. You kind of get involved. Okay, we got to talk, guys. And you start off by saying, "Hey, what do you guys, you know?" Agree on this is your brother. You love him. You know this yep. is your this, and you kind of go through it. So, so let's just say we're trying to figure out a way to put the people from the left and the right and the center in the same room. Okay, yep. and you're the mediator. They've hired you, Eric. That's your new job. Okay, to mediate these guys. Easy job, not a tough one. Hell has frozen over. Has <laughs> frozen over, and you show up right, and and you're trying to bring them together. What do you ask them? Like, what do you say? Do you say, guys, can we all agree that America is the greatest country in the world? No, it's not. Do you know what we've done? Okay, let me try a different way. Do you guys love your family? I love my family, but I know he doesn't love his family. How do you start to get these guys to start out a common? Like, I think the amplification of social media of idiots 
is, uh, look, I think most, um, I think you're going to see an awakening of what were traditional Democrats that feel yeah. abandoned by that party and uh, and even black and Hispanic votes that are, you know, most black and Hispanic voters know what a male and a female is. They know. Muslims that, as well, by the way. You can put Muslims in that absolutely. too. Absolutely. They definitely know it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you, uh, you focus on basic economic act- opportunity. Again, a candidate that runs on decartelizing industry wins. What was, what did the U S army do? The mission of the, um, U S army after world war II in Germany, denazification, um, demilitarization, and decartelization. The difference, again, I'm drawing in that book from Tepper. Um, seeing what John D. Rockefeller did, controlling most of the hydrocarbon industry in all of America, and then when the Sherman antitrust laws come along and they break up Standard Oil and it becomes all kinds of oil companies. And John, John Rockefeller made more money doing that because he had a bunch of businesses. Um, but the Germans saw that, and they did that to their industry. And so it made it very easy in the 20s, as they became bigger and bigger cartels after World War II, very easy for the Nazi party to control German industry, much easier to control 30 companies than 30,000 entrepreneur-led companies. We need America, we need hundreds of thousands of entrepreneur-led businesses with a very sharp elbow competition instead of the Fortune 500. Here's the thing. Even in the last like 20 years, there is half the amount of public com- public listed companies than there used to be. Why? Over consolidation. And, and how is that allowed to happen? Because it's like a $220, for every dollar you spend in lobbying, they get $220 return. It's like a 20, what a great rate 22,000% re- return, which is why we have too many damn lobbyists in Washington, D.C. And the five counties surrounding Washington, D.C. are the wealthiest per capita in the country. All of that is not not a sign of a healthy society. So fix that. Yeah. T- Teddy Roosevelt, total badass, got shot while he was campaigning, finished his speech, then he went and got fixed. He led a very, very rough but effective antitrust effort. We need that in America. <laughs> the the a, a rising boat, a rising tide really does lift all boats and uh, making it possible, whether you are super poor or you're middle class or whatever, easier to start a bu- to start a business, to get access to capital, all the rest. And it's even the same argument on on governance. One of my favorite authors is Hernando de Soto. And he wrote. um uh, invisible capital and the other path. And he was a Peruvian economist. Sorry, he was a Peruvian, m- managed a big construction firm in Switzerland, made all kinds of money, went back to Peru and said, why is Peru so rough? Why is Switzerland so nice? And he built a consulting firm around installing the basic building blocks of capitalism, like title for your land, a bank account, a business license, uh, a, a commercial remediation, a, a way to commercially adjudicate um, disputes, all the things we take for granted, right? If you want a business, you want to form a business in America, you can call 
10 states and get it done for 200 bucks in a half an hour. You can get a bank account. You can get that stuff exists. And, and we, but, but the more regulation, you know, the, this, this runaway regulatory state that now puts out like an average of 78,000 pages of rules, which has the force of law, which has never been voted on. When the regulatory state's allowed to do that, we truly have a, a constitutional crisis because we're supposed to have three branches of government, executive, legislative, judiciary, but we have a fourth permanent state bureaucracy that is not elected, not accountable, yet can write rules with the force of law. That must change. I just ordered a book. The uh, Mystery of Capital. Yeah. That's what you were talking about. It's so, it, you know, back, back in the 80s, Peru had a terrible problem with the Shining Path, the Sendero Luminoso, which was a Marxist, Maoist insurgency. And when they enacted Peru, uh, De Soto's reforms, land for the people that they owned, it was over. Because the farmer said, the campesino said, this is my land, pal. Get out. That's right. No more commies. So a couple more topics here before we wrap up. How much did you study? How much do you know about what happened with Iran? Do you know a lot about Iranian history or no? Okay, so what really happened with, you know, uh, uh, how the Hezbollahs, how Khamenei, Khomeini, how these guys came in with the Shah, you know, the revolution that took place with the Shah, how, how, how much do you know what happened there? I know that, uh, I think it was Mossad, Mossadegh. Mossadegh was before the Shah. Yes, yeah. but, but he was going to nationalize mm-hmm. uh, BP, mm-hmm. their oil fields, mm-hmm. and so there was a somewhat of a sponsored coup, mm-hmm. which ousted him, put the Shah in place. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the Khomeini definitely got help from the Soviets, uh, to stir up and to oust, right? Because they hated that there was an American friend on their on the border of the Soviet Union, and uh, I think the U.S. largely let the Shah hanging um, and didn't give him the help. Um, again, the, C- the CIA in the '70s was a very troubled, weakened, um, hamstrung organization between the Church Committee and and um, Stansfield Turner. Just kind of threw out all the all the sharks, and they were left with minnows. And um, what a what a strategic error to let it go. Destroyed an entire region. Now, a question for you. Let's just say hypothetically. And you know what? Someone just told me hmm. that the Shah converted to Christianity before he died. Did he really? Yeah. I've heard that story. Yep. Yeah, this is his last book he wrote before he died, Answer to History. Um, I just had his son on a couple months ago. We, had, we did a three-hour podcast. Reza Pahlavi? Yeah, we had him on a very, very... Longest podcast he's done. We had one of the best conversations. Everybody around the world was talking about it in the Iranian community. But I got, I got a question with this one. Say somebody was to call you, okay? And they said, hey, um, Eric, we would like to hire you as a consultant, and we would like some ideas. If we wanted to um, bring democracy back to Iran and... Whether it's a revolution on, to change on, the regime. Man. Come on, man. How would you go about doing you, it, Eric? I, what? Of course I've thought about that. Do you think I'm going to talk about it on camera? Give me three things. I mean, you know, it's just, this. first of all, we have a small podcast. Probably 17 people will watch this, okay? <laughs> and the 17 people that watch it, they're all going to be Iranian, just so you know that. <laughs> but if, if, I know you can't, do you in your mind know? Like, do you, you know exactly what I do. You know exactly what you, you would do. Absolutely. <laughs> who else knows 
Ah, some of my friends. Okay, good. So what I'm saying is... In, so if I get clipped, the, it, the mission will that's continue. Not, that's not what I'm saying. Sure. What, what I'm asking is like... No, look, think about this way. Reagan took office in 1981, mm-hmm. and he sat in the Oval Office because we'd had a policy of containment for 35 years, and he said, enough, we're going to fuck the commies. We're going to go at them economically, politically, culturally, socially, in all ways we push back. I remember that speech, fuck the commies. It was a... Uh, no. Uh, I get what you're saying. I'm look, with you. No, but Maybe I, he look, said it behind closed doors. Watch yeah. my podcast, yeah. Off Leash with Eric Prince, and, you, and see Jack Wheeler. Put the link below, by the way, so the audience can find it. Jack Wheeler was the guy that went abroad and brought back all the ideas which became the Reagan doctrine mm-hmm. for all the places to push back on the Soviets. And, I mean, he's the closest thing to a real-life uh, Indiana Jones. Anyway, I digress. What they did, what the, what the U.S., working in concert with the Catholic Church and MI6 in mm-hmm. Poland, mm-hmm. provided communications equipment to the shipyard workers, the, right, uh, the Solidarity Movement, students, farmers the church, all sorts of uh, communications. And that, you know, the, the means to communicate is, um, is essential. Uh, there's a fantastic book called The Dictator's Handbook. Great book. You've read it. Fen- pheno- it's small. It's a phenomenal yeah, book. Yeah, but it's a, it's a college study on how, an how dictators stay in power. Yeah. So identify who that selectorate is. Who keeps the supreme leader in power? Okay? You, there, obviously... The sad thing is, I think the the um, the Arab Spring started in Iran in 2009 with the Green Movement. You know, that's lots of people in the streets, and the regime was so threatened that they had to call in Lebanese Hezbollah to crack heads because they didn't trust the the Iranian internal capability anymore. And crickets, nothing from the Obama administration. Not we support Iranian freedom. We support your nothing. Not obviously no direct help or kinetic help, but not even the equivalent of a tweet or a statement. And then you have the women life freedom protest where women are protesting. They want to show their hair or wear a skirt or drink a beer or listen to rock and roll or drive or whatever, be normal and be free. And you'd think the women's rights groups from around the world would be supporting them, but it's, again, crickets from them, crickets from the left. Um, Empowering those movements with communications tools, with um, uh, you can make you can make the regime very, very vulnerable. Now, there's a lot of stuff before that that I'll tell you about after we're off camera. But yeah, yeah, it's it's. I, I was talking to Pierce two weeks ago, and he asked me the question. I said, "You know, Iran? What Pierce? Iran, Pierce Morgan? And I, oh, yeah. I said, what he fe- what Iran fears is not what you fear. Iran fears the youth. They fear women. They fear um, students. They fear sanctions. They fear economy being bad. Those are some of the things that they fear. The question is, you know, to go about doing that with Iran." Um, you also need the right administration that's willing to go all the way through for that to happen. And that's a lot of work. And yep. you, 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 you do that. Why would Russia or China, whatever your plan is, let's just say your plan is a strong plan, effective one. Why would Russia or China allow you to win? Well, the Iranian people ultimately get a say. There's, what, 85 million people? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, look, the Iran even has a demographic problem themselves. The, the women have voted and closed their wombs. I mean, they went from like five kids per per woman to like 0.8. Right. They have a severe contraction issue. Right. China has it because of force. They have the reverted pyramid, whatever they call it, inverted pyramid. Where yeah, and, 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 and the costs where it's very, very expensive to for them to try to start a family and job insecurity and all the rest. I'm curious to know what your plan is. I'm very interested to see what your plan is, and, and you and I will uh, we'll talk off camera. Next question. McAfee, John McAfee. I don't know if you remember him. McAfee antivirus. He's an antivirus guy, yeah. right? So I sat down with him six years ago at his place, five years ago at his place. Very interesting guy, eccentric. He, the entire interview, he had a gun on him. He was smoking cigarettes, and he was having whiskey or something while his guys in the back are holding M16. Some guy knocks on the door. They run to the door with guns. The guy's freaking out. I'm just trying to drop off something. He said, uh, he looks at me with my phone. He says, why do, you, why do you have a regular phone? I would never have a regular phone. So what do you mean? He said, I would never have a regular You know what kind of a phone I got? Do you know who's spying on your phone? I said, John, do you really believe about everybody? He said, you, you have too much trust, okay? Now for you, you also, you know, talk about a certain phone, yep. right? That it, t- tell us a little bit more about that phone. Well, this, um, this is an unplugged phone. Okay. And this is uh, this resulted from the nonsense after the 2020 elections. Mm-hmm. Big tech was canceling certain apps and shutting off certain voices. And I said to some of my much smarter friends, and they, I said, we need our own phone that they cannot cancel, they cannot control. And so this is an unplugged phone, which is a result. It's our hardware. It says unplugged on there. Mm-hmm. Um, high-end camera. Same, same one that's on the iPhone 15. Uh, but the difference is this is our operating system with our own store, VPN, antivirus, messenger. But the difference is we don't have an advertising ID. Your phone has like a 25-digit, basically like a mark of the beast, which follows you everywhere. And it's they know where you go, what you buy, how you, uh, where you go, who you call, what you buy, and what you browse. And they t- the handset, right, Apple, Google take that data, export it to the tune of about $180 a year, and the apps that are on your phone also work with that ID to export to the point of even turning on the microphone, turning on the camera, turning on GPS. Um, I've had so many people I've talked to, they said, yeah, I was talking to my wife in our bedroom about the need for a mattress, and the next day we're getting advertising for mattresses. So imagine that phone listening in their bedroom. Uh, So this phone prevents that because it doesn't have an operating system. We block that, and it's actually the first one with an actual firewall on it that you can hard off the Wi-Fi, the camera, the microphone. Who's the service through? T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon, and uh, we prefer Patriot Mobile. Got it. So, so it's really the Internet. It's really on the... It allows you to be in the world but not of the world and not be collected and tracked. Got it. Very and it's called what? Unplugged. 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 Dot, unplugged.com. There you go. Yeah, we're looking at. Uh, we delivered. Uh, yeah, we delivered five hundred of them uh, in November, and I got ten thousand coming, uh, delivering soon. So did, you guys just started this. Ah, uh, well, geez, we we went from zero to a fully functioning phone with our own operating system uh, in three years. That is so cool. Just that's great. If you've ever heard of Pegasus, yes. The guy that developed Pegasus is our CTO. Got it. Okay, so he's a good CTO. But he developed it as a way to do remote phone service. 
and then he um, he built a very secure phone used by governments, and then he built a phone that controls most of the world's pacemakers. Now, who's behind this phone, by the way, investor-wise? Me. Just you? Well, no, me and, and some others. And a few others. Okay. You haven't done a round? You haven't brought people in yet or anything? Uh, no, there's, I think we have 10. Okay. Got it. Very interesting concept. But we are, it is intentionally not a Silicon Valley-backed company. It will not be a public company ever, and it is there to be an independent phone platform. Right. It's not even an American company. Where's the base out of? Cyprus. Cyprus. Okay. Cool. That's a very interesting project. Last but not least, before we wrap up, I, I saw an article. I wonder if this is true or not. Did you guys train Project Veritas as spies on how to go and get intel from some of the people out there? Is that, is that a somewhat of a true story? Um, they, uh, I didn't train anybody, but uh, but they did use our ranch at some point. They did, yeah. What, what? Just for it's open area, and they had you know, they used the barn and a classroom. What a interesting model! Did you see him the other day dressed like a gay man going out there talking to? And he actually pulled it off. <laughs> you got to give this guy credit on one. Obviously, he's no longer with Project Veritas. That's it's called OMG, you know. Chutzpah. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. Eric, uh, your book. Uh, 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 oh, can you I, tell I, us a I, little I, bit about the book? I, I brought this for you. This, oh, okay, this fantastic. Is, this is the uh, Civilian Warriors. It's um, the book I wrote about uh, starting and running and getting crushed in Blackwater. But it's a uh, it's a bit cathartic and uh, it. Sets the record straight. Well, is the next one going to be, I'm back? Is that like the next one? <laughs> I'm back in the PMC side. Okay. Um, come back. It's going to be interesting to see what you do with it. You know, I, I, I look, there's a lot of instability in the world and there's a lot of people suffering unnecessarily. And it pains me that, that the U S can't ever seem to finish. Um, and, and the, the, the private sector has the model of how to do that cheaply practically, ethically, and and safely for the people and not safely for the jihadis that deserve to die. You know what my interest is? Here's what my interest is. Purely competition. That's my interest. Because yeah. if we have more PMCs, if we, in a, in a perfect world for me at least, as a civilian, if we had 20, 30, 40 PMCs, I feel safer. And the reason why I feel safer is because the way AI is advancing... I will feel very uncomfortable if it's a monopoly controlled by a government who can impose certain regulations against PMCs or if it's done by a guy who is a multi-billionaire and not just a billionaire, guy that's worth half a billion dollars or a trillion dollars who has his own PMC. Because remember, a lot of people think PMCs are like such a, you know, oh my God, PMC, Ross Perot. I think uh, send, uh, uh, I don't know how many PMCs hey, to hey, go hey, get his uh, hey, 130 hey. employees from EDS when they were working for the yep. show in the 70s. And he and, exfilled them in 79. Right, and he yeah, brought them back sure. in December. Yeah, and he left a few guys to finish the project, and after Khomeini, they, uh, he brought them back. So Ross Perot did that. I mean, there's a lot of people that have done this to protect their guys. Nature hates a vacuum. Yeah. Private military contractors are, it's kind of the, the world's second oldest profession. As long as people have been picking up sticks and throwing them at each other. Yeah. PMCs were the the engineers that built the trebuchets or the this super accurate bowman if you're using a longbow or today it's it's the guys that are can fix the aircraft or provide uh, very high end um, intelligence capabilities. I'd like to see more of them. That's that's where I'm at. I'd like to see more of them so the government has to compete and get tighter, better. 
Cheaper. And, and I can tell you unequivocally that big Washington and big government wants to crush it all. It wants to they want a big monopoly and our big monopoly military is not very effective at finishing. And that's the problem. And by the way, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't trust if there's only one PMC. I don't no. want only one PMC. A hundred of them. I, Great. Not, I want as many PMCs and let the best ones survive. And then if we have 20, 30 of them, I think we're in a very good place. The gazelle wakes up in the morning knowing that he has to outrun the lion or he'll be eaten. The lion wakes up in the morning, knows that he has to outrun the gazelle or he will starve. That's right. So whether you're the lion or the gazelle, when you wake up in the morning, let's find out. You better be running. Let's let's find out. Eric, appreciate you for coming out. Cheers. This was great. Really enjoyed it. Been looking forward to this for a while. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye, bye-bye.